John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He may be seated, but I want to read another passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17. You can remain seated. Um, but I'd like to just read this before I begin to teach on these thoughts. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself and hath by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing or charging them with their trespasses, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So I'd like to speak to you tonight on the thought the Word made flesh. Now, Sunday, Brother Josh Herring is going to be here. And I just want to remind you that when we have an evangelist, we go with the flow of how they direct us in responding to the altar, to prayer, to people receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. So we need every altar worker on high alert, every saint of God, and sometimes people do not come to the altar. They're standing back in the seats, but they're feeling the presence of God. So please look around you. We've been saying a couple times later to, to own your pew. We don't have pews anymore, but own your row, own your section. Uh, take responsibility for the souls of people who worship with you and sit around you in church. It's very important. The entire month of October, we spoke on uh, various ministers here and people who are part of our church family on Christians at Work. On Sunday, I tried to bridge Christians at Work with Made for a Mission. When you left Sunday, you should have received a messenger or you should have received an email. If you did not receive the messenger by email, if you'll contact our church office, give them your email address. We won't overwhelm you with email, but we'll keep you posted about what's going on in our church family because we want you to be connected to God through His church that happens to have a local presence. And anyone who thinks that a church, you can be a part of the universal church and not be connected to a local church, doesn't understand the Bible very well at all. Unless you're stationed in Antarctica where there is no church, or a place where there is no church, you need to connect to a local body of believers. So, missions conference is coming, and you've already heard about all of that. But we really felt like the segue from Christians at work to, okay, I'm a Christian at work, what next? We want to equip you to be a better witness, a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read a scripture that's an interesting verse in John chapter 1. It really is a genealogy of Jesus, but a little different from the other genealogies. Our New Testament opens with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four-dimensional view of the life of Christ. And Matthew gives us a genealogy that portrays Jesus as the kingly Messiah of Jewish prophecies. He has 40 Old Testament quotes, 60 references. He wants us to know that as it was written, it was written that Jesus would come, that Messiah would come, and that Jesus was the real deal. He was the Messiah. Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus. It begins in Matthew 1 and 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It concludes in verse 16 and 17. Mark does not give us a genealogy. Luke gives us a genealogy and he goes in reverse order all the way back, beginning in Luke 3.23. Jesus was about 30 years of age as being supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. And he walks all the way back to Adam, concluding in Luke 3.38 that 
Enos, Seth, Adam, who was the son of God. But John, that unique supplement gospel, who intentionally by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost is not a synoptic gospel. It doesn't view in a similar way the events of the life of Christ. But God intentionally let John be set apart for a different view, uh, an accurate view, but a different approach. In John 1 and 1, he opens by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And then verse 14, our text. And the Word was made flesh. God Almighty became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld God's glory, amen, in the face of Jesus Christ. We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. But Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. John does not trace the human lineage of Jesus Christ, but he traces the divine lineage that Jesus was God in flesh. This is the biblical view, and I want to review. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. 2 Corinthians 5.19 To wit, or to understand, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. Colossians 2.8 Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of men, and the rudim- after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, And a couple months ago, we taught on, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. To say a lot more on the doctrine of the oneness of God, a fundamental truth that every Jew believed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. He deserves our total allegiance. I want to assure you, and I'm taking... A little time on purpose here to talk about the Word made flesh. uh, That this is not our apostolic tradition. This is not our brand. This is the Bible truth of the nature of God. It is not a matter of semantics. Well, you apostolics see God this way and you say it this way. But we non-apostolics, we Trinitarians, we, see it, we say it this way, but we all believe the same thing, we just say it a different way. I just want to be clear tonight that it, we do not just say it differently, we see Him differently. We know that God was manifest in the flesh. So let me just dig into this for a few minutes. Jesus is not the second person in a triune God. Religious tradition called the Trinity developed after the birth, death of Jesus Christ. And probably in the 300s, Brother James Turner is an expert on church history and teaches it periodically in our church. But I read an explanation of the Trinity that's fairly consistent. So I want to just make sure you know that for the next few minutes... I am representing a Trinitarian view of God because I want you to understand why it is a confusing doctrine. So I'm quoting. They say, 
Christians in every land unite in proclaiming that our God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those who deny that truth place themselves outside the pale of Christian orthodoxy, which makes me smile because I think Judaism is orthodoxy. The entirety of the Old Testament is orthodox. He said, having said that, I admit that no one understands it fully. Everybody, he said, believes it, but nobody understands it. It is a mystery and a paradox, yet I believe it's true. He said, I, think, I can think of at least three reasons for believing the Trinity. First, the Bible teaches this doctrine. Wrong. Second, Christians everywhere have always believed it. Wrong. Third, no other explanation makes sense. Wrong. In fact, this explanation that I'm going to give doesn't make sense. Someone said it this way. If you try to explain the Trinity, this is, I'm quoting him. If you try to explain the Trinity, you will lose your mind. But if you deny it, you'll lose your soul. I agree with the first statement. Now this is what Trinitarians say about the nature of God. We believe that the one God eternally exists in three persons. So already, that, that's why you'll lose your mind. Because that cannot make sense. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that these three are one God, but they are co-equal and they are co-eternal. They would say there's no subordination of persons. Although we know that Jesus submitted Himself and subordinated Himself to the will of the Spirit as a man. Anyway, having precisely the same nature and attributes and worthy precisely of the same worship, confidence, and obedience. In fact, people that are sincere often try to give equal time to praying or worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, while I'm sure that this statement is biblically accurate, I also understand that it can seem very intimidating. He said, let's break it down into six smaller statements. Only one God and one only, we all believe that, exists in three persons, impossible. They're equal and eternal, impossible. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. His beginning is at Bethlehem. He is the Son of God according to the flesh. He exists as concept, as the Logos in the mind of God, but He doesn't have a pre-existent state before Bethlehem. They're worthy of equal praise and worship. He is worthy of all worship. They are distinct yet acting in unity. If three of us were on the platform, we could all sing in unison or we could sing in three-part harmony and you could say that that is unity, but that is not one person, it's three persons. They're distinct acting in unity, constituting the one true God of the Bible. As you might imagine, the early church struggled mightily over this doctrine. You better believe they did. Actually, the early church didn't struggle over this doctrine. They, had no, they did not believe this doctrine. It did not exist in the Old Testament or in the days of the apostles. It did not exist at all. They eventually reduced their belief into the Trinity to two short statements. They concluded that God is one in essence, three in persons. And they go on and on to try to explain all about the Trinitarian And I just want to kind of go on record tonight that no wonder Trinitarians admit that you cannot understand the Trinity, that if you try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. The Trinitarian concept of God is contradictory. It is illogical. It is a mystery for one reason, that it is not the biblical view of God. Now, my message tonight is not on the Trinity, but I just want to make sure that you're clear that it's not just a matter of the way I say it and you say it and a Trinitarian says it. I'm not saying that every Trinitarian uh, doesn't love God. I'm just saying that that concept of God is not biblical. It is rooted in tradition. It is not rooted in the Bible and the Old Testament. Jews never believed that. The apostles did not believe it. Jesus certainly didn't believe it because he knew who he was. 
He knew that He was Almighty God come in the flesh. The mystery of godliness is that it happened. 1 Timothy 3 and 16, that God was made in the flesh. That is the mystery that God could come to earth and that He would be made in the likeness of men for us. I want you to beware of people who would minimize or undermine the nature of God and the nature of Christianity. Now, I didn't really plan to talk about this in my message tonight. Yesterday, as we were opening our pastor's meeting, the Lord, as I prayed, prompted Jude 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. Verses 1-4 through to my mind. So I wanted to, what I already said, I plan to say, but what I'm going to say now was really kind of a parenthesis in this message. Jude said this, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Jude said, Jude writes toward the end of the apostolic era. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who before of old, who were before of old, ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God in our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I, when, when the Lord prompts me in prayer, I, I may not know something intellectually or by knowledge, but I take it seriously. So I want to ask you, this idea that Jude is asking, has someone crept into your life with a subtle voice of questioning, undermining the truths of the Word of God? Jude explains it like this. From the Greek, the word is that they have secretly slipped in among you. It only occurs in the New Testament here and nowhere else. The idea is the idea of a lawyer who is cleverly pleading and gradually insinuating his version of the evidence into the mind of the judge and the jury. He is very slick and subtle. This person that creeps in unawares. You don't even know that he's sitting at the table as a false teacher, as a person that does not believe the truth, but he just begins to nibble away, he begins to erode away at the truth of God in your life. The same word can refer to a spy sneaking into a country. Remember, the Jews had 12 spies and another time at Jericho, they sent in two spies to go in and spy out the land. That's the idea. Or somebody sneaking in by a side door. They just kind of come in a way you didn't expect them. Jude said they're ungodly. He later talks about them as people who speak evil of those in authority, whether it's supernatural or natural. They turn the grace of God into something that is different. The grace that teaches that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present time is turned into liberty or grace that has no boundaries at all and that is no grace. Grace is the power of God to live for God, not the permission of God to not live for Him. And grace teaches that we are to deny ungodly and worldly lusts. Well... I've learned sadly in my life that illumination, or some people will call it revelation. I believe the revelation of God is in this book right here. That God can illumine your, illuminate your mind, and we sometimes call it revelation. So I'll loosely use the word revelation. That revelation and delusion feel the same because they both come from God. The Lord illuminates His Scripture to you and He draws you closer to Him. 
But delusion is when God causes you to believe a lie and be damned. God shall send them strong delusion, the Bible says. But it's both, they both come from God. Revelation or illumination comes to you as you're coming toward God and God opens His Word to you. We will know Him as we follow on to know Him. Walk in the light as He is in the light. You have fellowship. As you walk with God and draw near to Him, His Word opens up to you with understanding and you draw closer to Him. That's what illumination does. But when you like the people in Rome... That, excuse me, that Romans, not in Rome, but what Romans 1 talks about, that they, they know God, but they glorify Him not as God. Their foolish heart is darkened. They profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. Instead of embracing truth, they begin to reject truth, and now they're deluded till they cannot understand truth at all. It's a very sad thing when it happens. Because that person believes that God has revealed something to them. They profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. Their foolish heart is darkened. Here's something that's real important. James talks about this. This is not in my notes, but James said, that if you are guilty of the law, and I've talked about this through the years here, if you're guilty of the law in one point, you're guilty of the whole law. Now wait a second, that means you're going to throw the book at me? But if you violate truth, if you don't just violate, you know, page 873, or a particular verse or precept in the Bible, you violate the relationship. Because the same God that said, don't commit adultery said don't steal. So you can say, well, I'm not going to steal, but I'm going to commit adultery, and I'm going to be a partial believer, and I'm going to be partially right with God. But James said that's impossible, because the same God who gave the first commandment gave the Ten Commandments. The same God that gave part of the Bible gave us all of the Bible. So beware, truth is a body. And when you reject a part of truth, you reject the person of truth and it distorts your ability to perceive all truth. You may not know all truth. None of us would claim to know everything about the Bible. But if I know to do good and I do it not, it is a sin. If I know something is right and I turn my back and not my face toward God, I have rejected not truth 296. I have rejected the one God of heaven who is the Lord of my life. This is very, very important. Brother Chris Green preached here Memorial Day weekend. He preached a general conference and he preached a similar message. I guess it stuck with me more at general conference. Um, he said bitterness and holiness are in two adjacent verses in the Bible for a reason. So I want you to please go to Hebrews 12, 12. And I'm backing up a little bit. But I want you to see something that I feel is important. <clears throat> Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way but let it rather be healed. If you were on a hike in the mountains and you twisted your ankle now you have an injury, you have weakness. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that when you've been hurt, you are vulnerable. That which is lame can be turned out of the way. But, James, but he says, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says, but you can be healed. But be careful when you're hurt, that you don't let hurt affect you Look at verse 14. These all go together. They're verses back to back. Follow peace with all men and holiness 
which, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Brother Green said that Hebrews twelve fourteen that speaks of holiness, and verse 15 that speaks of bitterness are connected. And he told here and at General Conference the story of his grandfather who was hurt as a preacher, became offended, became bitter, and backslid, went away from God, and at the end of his life the Lord was merciful to him and he came back to the Lord. I want to just say here that you need to be careful when you're offended, when you're hurt, lest you be turned out of the way. Because if you don't follow peace with all men and holiness, you give way to bitterness in your life that you can be defiled by that. Now peace doesn't mean that we're ignoring a problem, the elephant in the room. Peace means that we have reconciled. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that made me, that changed me from an enemy of God to a friend of God. Alright? We're no more aliens or strangers. We're not enemies anymore. We are now friends of God. But it was something that made peace. There are some people that have a fake peace in their home, in their relationships, which means there's a lot of junk going on under the surface that is never dealt with. And they call that peace because nobody's yelling, nobody's disagreeing, nobody's arguing. But until you come to agreement, until you work it out, until you are reconciled, there is no peace. So... You've got to come to peace. When you, when you do not make peace, you nurse your hurt, you're vulnerable of being turned out of the way. Like the serpent, false teachers insinuate, like, did God really say don't eat of every tree? Oh, you will not die. That's the way it works. The erosion of your faith in God is subtle and deadly. When you embrace false ideas, false doctrine, the Bible would say it's like putting a little bit of yeast in a, in a lot of dough. I could have a large piece of dough laying here, as large as this podium, and if I put a little yeast in there and gave it time, it would leaven the entire loaf. Because yeast is active, it's not inert. It doesn't just stay there dormant. It begins to affect everything it touches and it spreads throughout the entire thing. So when we allow a little lie in our lives, it begins to take over our lives. I, uh, I have a friend. And uh, quite a few years ago, we were on a... We're together, I'll just say it like that. We're together for several hours talking. And he was questioning practical holiness. And we had a good discussion about that. Five years later, five years later to the week, we were together again. And this time, we were discussing and debating the oneness of God the essentiality of speaking in tongues as a sign of the Holy Ghost, salvation, salvific doctrine, salvation doctrine. And I, I said, don't you remember five years ago, we were you know, kind of in this same place together and we were talking about holiness and I told you that it doesn't stop there, that it continues to erode your faith in God. And I will tell you, as Paul said, even weeping, Paul said, but I have watched many people make shipwreck. Backsliding is bad, but delusion is worse. Because delusion is rooted in 
professing yourself to be wise. Delusion is rooted in an assumed illumination, a revelation instead of delusion. Backslider usually knows what I'm doing is wrong. It's a sin. I need to turn my life around. But a deluded person thinks they're enlightened. That's why they think they can sin that grace may abound. So, be careful. Little ears what you hear, right? Whose voices you entertain in your life. And I, I, I wanted to talk about God man manifest in the flesh. And then I felt this warning yesterday to talk to you about false teachers. But why was God manifested in the flesh? What motivated God that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us? That we could behold His glory. God in flesh. God with us. Emmanuel. An amazing thing that God would do that. Now, some people say, well, you know, God became flesh so He could understand us. Well, I would argue that God didn't need to become flesh so He could understand us. He made us in His image and after His likeness. Psalm 139 said, when I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. You made me. You knew all about me. In Psalm 103 like a father pities his children, the Lord pities him to fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God did not need to come in flesh so he could understand the human plight. But God came in flesh. And there's probably multiple reasons. I mean, the core is in the scripture, of course. So that we would know that he was an empathetic high priest, that he was easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And Hebrews tells us why. Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death, this is why he came, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him, it pleased him, to be made like unto his brethren, like unto you and me, that he might be a merciful and faithful priest in things pertaining to God, and to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He came in flesh so he could destroy the works of the devil. So he could be a faithful high priest. So he could make reconciliation for the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or come to the aid of them that are tempted. What a God. God was one of us. And God with us in our human condition. He was tempted in all points like as us without sin. Amen. He was in Christ. Amen. I want to go to, to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And this kind of goes a little farther in this idea about God in Christ. And then I want to show you the essence of my message the Word made flesh. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, that mediator between God and man, that priest, that high priest, who came in flesh, God cannot die. But the man Christ Jesus could give his life a ransom for us all. He could die on the cross. He would have to say, Into my, in your hands I commit my spirit. Right? Before he could die. And no one took his life from him. He laid it down of himself. You could not kill 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, I want you to see that God was in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. And then he committed to us this word of reconciliation. There's a transfer. Now, we are not co-redeemers. We cannot save anybody. I think we all know that, right? Verse 20. Excuse me, let me just say one other thing. Though we are, we are not dispatched to be Jesus, but we are sent to represent Jesus. And we've been given the very same mission as Jesus was given, and that is to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm not trying to sneak up on you tonight. Sunday I said you're made for a mission. Tonight I want you to know that when He saved you, He also called you and commissioned you to be an extension of His ministry to the world. Now, verse 20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us. Paul said, God is begging you. He's urging you strongly through us. We're the ones standing here in God's place. Jesus died, buried, resurrected, ascended, exalted. His Spirit came back and filled every one of us. And now we're His extension, right? We have got His ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. We're operating as His ambassadors. Calling lost people. God is calling lost people to Himself through His church, through you and me. We are here in Christ's stead, making the same appeal that He did in the days of His flesh. Amen. So while we are not God in the flesh, as Jesus was, through our lives, and I'm saying this in application, that the Word of God has to be made flesh. It's got to to be spoken through human lips. That's just the way God works. Verse 21, For He hath made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We then, chapter 6, verse 1, as workers together with Him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Let us not preach to you and you not respond to it. You need to respond to this. We are workers with Him We shouldn't waste grace, we should embrace it. Right? Amen. So today, I want to reinforce a single common mission of every child of God, of every born-again believer. Everyone here in this room has somewhat of a unique testimony. We teach in our discipleship process that you have a unique shape for ministry, S-H-A-P-E. You have spiritual gifts. You have a personality, S-H, you have a heart for ministry. You have uh, abilities. You have a personality. You have experiences, right? All of that are what God has given you. You have a spiritual shape for ministry. And we all have different gifts, but we all have one goal. We all have one mission. We do not have permission to have a separate mission than the one Jesus gave us. We're called to different mission fields. But the common ground is that we're to lead everyone, everywhere, to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to saving grace. Do you think that if He wanted to, God could have thundered Acts 2.38 to every living person in the world? The heavens declare the glory of God The firmament shows His handiwork. God has revealed Himself in creation and in conscience, general revelation. But God has revealed Himself in the Word and He's manifested Himself through preaching or teaching or testifying of who He is. I want to remind you tonight 
that ministry is close up and personal. That God could have stayed aloof. He understood us. He could have sent instructions, but He came in the flesh. He became one of us. And if we are going to reach the world, we cannot do it from a padded seat in a sanctuary. We cannot do it in quiet. It has to be done with an obligation as a missionary to the world. He chose by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God chose that. Now let me tell you a couple stories to reinforce this. Remember Saul of Tarshish? He's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. He is persecuting the church. And he's going to Damascus. He's got letters of, in his pocket. He's going to persecute the Christians there. And about noonday there's a blinding light. It comes out of heaven. And God Almighty speaks to Saul of Tarshish and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says back to the light, Who are you, Lord? Now, Paul was not saying, Are you Buddha? Are you Confucius? He's a Jew. And he's saying, Why am I persecuting you? Who are you, Lord? I'm persecuting Christians. I'm not persecuting God, but God, Jehovah, identified Himself as His church and said, why are you persecuting me? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. God spoke that out of heaven. And if He said those words, I would kind of think He could have said anything He wanted. Right? But look what he says in Acts 9 and 6. Trembling and astonished, he said, which I think I would have been trembling and astonished too. Blinded by the light, knocked to my knees, ate the voice of Almighty God telling me that I've been persecuting Him while I've been killing Christians. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said, repent, no. God is speaking from heaven. And He said, arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Why in the world did God not just get it over with and say, alright Paul, you need to go, repent of your sins, be baptized in Jesus' name and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, I know most of you already know what I'm telling you, but we're all educated above the level of our obedience. We know more than we do. Starting with the person standing here teaching. He says, I want you to go into the city, and I'm going to send a man to you. His name is Ananias. He's going to come and he's going to tell you what to do. He's going to pray for you. He's going to heal. You're going to be healed. Paul's going to get baptized. Saul of Tarshish, who becomes the Apostle Paul. That's just the way God works. If he didn't want to do it that way, he could have hung around in the flesh. He could reveal everything to everybody just as God Almighty. He's sovereign. Remember the story of Cornelius? Cornelius is a very sincere man, Acts chapter 10. He's devout, he fears God with all of his house, he prays all the time and he gives a lot of money and you might think he's saved because of that. He's sincere, he's walking in all the light he knows, he prays, he gives alms and you might call him saved but God says, you know what, you're sincere, you're so sincere, I'm going to do something about your sincerity. And God sends an angel to Cornelius who appears to him. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm just going to say that I have personally never seen, that I'm aware of, an angelic visit. I've not had an angelic visitation my whole life. God speaks to me. I think He spoke to me yesterday. I told you about that while I was praying. I think God speaks to you and me. I have never seen an angel. Cornelius is not a Christian. He's not a Jew. And he sees an angel. And the angel says, Your prayers and your alms have come up before me as a memorial. 
Look at Acts 10 and 5. Now, Cornelius, repent, be back. No, he doesn't say that. I know you already know this, right? Most of you do. Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And I'm going to send a man. I'm an angel. I'm standing here talking to you right now. But that's not how God works with the gospel. Now, it was harder for God to get Peter to go to Cornelius' house than it was for him to get Cornelius to send for Peter. Because he was prejudiced against Gentiles. That's why they had to receive the Holy Ghost first. So he would baptize them. Because the vision said, what I have cleansed, you don't call it common or unclean. And when he gives a report, he said, God filled him with the Holy Ghost. What can I do? I had to baptize him. He had an out, right? You can go read that. Acts 10, Acts 11. That's just the way God works. I'm not saying that God never has. I'm not saying that God never ever will. Because he doesn't work for me. I work for him. But the precedent of the scripture, if there's somebody sincere, God will get a word to them if he forget Simon Peter to get up and go. But you kind of have to wonder. While I was just telling that story, I wonder how many people live and work around us who God spoke to and we... God wanted us to be Simon Peter. God wanted us to be Ananias to go. And we think that if we'll just work in the next cubicle from him long enough, it'll rub off on him. Or if we're just a good enough neighbor and cut our grass, you know, often and don't, and are nice people, that eventually they'll just get saved. Or that because they're sincere, they're already saved. Why ruffle their feathers? Why mess up their world? But Cornelius, as sincere as he was, had to obey the revealed word of God to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that sounds rough on our sympathetic American ears with all the fine, and I'm sincere, fine, wonderful Christian people all around our city. But sincerity will not save you. Sincerity and truth will save you. It takes both. You've got to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And somebody has to tell them. Somebody has to tell them. And somebody's got to go into their world. Thank God for hope ministry that goes into the world of the homeless men and women. But we can't salve our conscience and say, oh, we've got a homeless ministry. You know, that's delegated to them. So I don't need compassion. I can drop something in the offering once a year whenever I want. Support all those people that feel a call there. Brother Trey, Sister Charmé, and a team of people that we've selected and being very careful with this. We have approval for a preaching point in Old Fourth Ward and no one can be connected to that group without our pastoral permission. We're doing that for a reason because we're not trying to start a church there with a bunch of saints going to just fill up a little building and have church and say hallelujah and not reach any lost people. We're going there strategically with prayer and Bible studies trying to reach unchurched people in Old Fourth Ward. But thank you for being a missionary there and feeling a call to go there. We want to get that right. That part of our city. 1 Corinthians 9.16 Words of Paul For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul's not like, hey dude, I'm a preacher. He said, I don't have anything to brag about because I preach. If I don't preach, I'm cursed. 
That's exactly what he's saying. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews, I became a Jew. He was a Jew, but he related to them as a Jew. He would, dis- he would discuss in the synagogue with them. He knew how to connect to his Jewish brethren. And he went in that door. He started from the Old Testament, the common ground of the Bible. He said, I became as a Jew. To them that are under the law, as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as, without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I may gain them that are without the law. He's a wordy trying to explain himself, saying, Gentiles. Okay? He said, I, I reach them. And when he, read Acts 14, Acts 17, when Paul is talking to pagan people, We've got pagan people in our city right now. They don't believe a word of the Bible. They don't know who God is. And Paul started from nature. Acts 14, Acts 17. Some people criticize Paul's approach in Acts 17 as if it didn't work. I don't really agree with that. I think he tried to reach them and there are three categories. Some rejected, some said we'll hear more, and some claved to him at the end of Acts 17. But Paul said, when I'm reaching out to people that are pagans, I I find a way to talk their talk. I'm on Mars Hill. I'm going to quote Cretan philosophers. We're his offspring, right? We're not far from him. He's not far from every one of us. He quotes their guys so he can get into their heart. He knows how. Till the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Now Paul did not say, I became a drunk to relate to drunks. Just in case you think that's what he meant. I became immoral to relate to the immoral. That is not what he said. Now I've alluded to this, but this is where it is in my notes. It concerns me that too many Christians have the faulty and failed concept that just being a witness for Jesus, just living a good life in front of people will eventually win them to God. The gospel, the word gospel means good news I I was going to put it in my notes a couple different times left it off it's some old church father person who said preach the gospel when necessary use words that's baloney the gospel is words backed up by a life and I know that you don't just go in with guns blazing I remember seeing at the Mississippi camp meeting, an old dusty vehicle with the sticker on the back that said, Holiness or Hell. I'm sure you're making a lot of converts like that, buddy. People are flocking to hear your word. We don't believe that's how you reach people. Paul said, I try to understand where they are so I can find common ground and reach them. But I just want to kind of thump us a little bit to say that eventually you've got to open your mouth and tell them what the Bible says. Got to open your mouth. And some people will be offended. Some people will reject you. Some may persecute you. Some may throw you in jail. Some may kill you. And rejoice and be exceeding glad because they persecuted the prophets that were before you. That's what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. 
You're like in shell shocked right now a little bit. I don't want to be thrown in jail. I'm not looking forward to being persecuted or martyred. But we want to be so nice that nobody's ever offended. And again, there's extremes, you know, the holiness or hell thing. Some people are real strong about what they say, but they're not one people because they, they just, they don't, they don't know people. They're not wise in reaching people. So, you know, there are ditches on either side of the road. But let's just be real transparent here. The slow conversion rate of this New Testament church, Atlanta West Pentecostal Church, the United Pentecostal Church, and the church in general ought to tell us that something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something is wrong with us. Nothing's wrong with God. The Holy Spirit isn't weaker than it was ever, right? People are not any less lost today. Starting with the pastor of the church, something wrong. And in the last few months, the Lord has just been kind of eating my spiritual lunch that the early church did not have a problem with growth. They exploded in growth. They had problems with sin, the devil, persecution, mentality. They thought wrong about a lot of things. But growth was not a problem to them. When they were persecuted, they went everywhere preaching the word, not the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. But people just like you, who are not preachers, went everywhere preaching the Word. So, my message to us tonight is that we've got to be the Word made flesh. And we've got to be the Word. We have to speak the Word of God. Musicians, please come. Give us hope. I want to tell one quick story. Um, Carl Adams, missionary to the Philippines. And when he retired, he moved to Jackson, Mississippi. He was one of the most incredible Christian gentlemen. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. Brother Wolfram, did you ever know Brother Adams? What a great man. Well, I, I went and spent some time with Brother Adams just talking to him because he's an older man. I wanted to just hear him and ask him questions. And he was telling a story that when he went to the Philippines, that no, they would not receive him. The people in the churches and they were around the Philippines are trying to get, they just like, this North American guy, this American, he, he's not one of us. And they just really pushed him away. They did not accept him at all. But Brother Adam said, I went on a tour around the Philippines, a 30-day tour. I slept in my car. I went city to city to remote areas of the Philippines. I was among the people there. And he said, after that trip, after that 30-day trip, something shifted in their receptivity to me, that they realized that I was not this North American white guy that was just kind of living in their country but was not living among them. But I really was there because I loved them. He was the word made flesh, not God incarnate, don't misunderstand me theologically, but he was God's ambassador to them. And when he went into their world, and when he showed them the love of God through his sacrificial life, and it dawned on them that this guy has credibility. Let's hear what he has to say. So I'm going back to what I've been really driving home more than just preaching and speaking the gospel. But the church is only as effective as we are hands-on with people. Thank God for the internet. Thank God for social media. Thank God for a website. Thank God for an app that people on their own can discover truth. Thank God for a Bible that people can read for themselves and God can reveal Himself through His Word. He can do that. But I I don't believe the world is ever going to be reached by mass media. 
It's going to be reached by like us. Being Christ's hands, feet, mouth to everybody around us. To show the love of God to people. Doing everything we do out of love for God and love for people. And then when the Lord opens that door where they ask a question or you feel a prompting of the Spirit, not 10 years from now, then you begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most unoffensive thing you can do is just tell your story, tell your testimony. Before, how, now. What I was before Christ, how I came to Him, and how He has changed my life. I've taught on that before, but it's been several years ago. Just tell your story. It is the most powerful thing you can do. And weave in the Word of God. No one can refute it. No one can dispute it. It's your story of what God has done for you. Would you stand now? Amen. I know some of you have very early mornings, and I respect that. If you need to go, you're welcome to go. But if you have a few minutes and you'd like to gather in prayer, what I'd really like to do is follow up from Sunday. You were made for a mission. Would you like tonight to volunteer to be the Word made flesh to your world? If you have a few moments, why don't you gather? Amen.